Welcome to the Recovery Stories podcast, bringing you stories of hope, healing, and triumph over the bondage of addictions, mental health struggles, trauma, and dysfunctional family systems. Our courageous storytellers have chosen to live their journey out loud in order to show others that they don't have to suffer in silence. The stories you will hear are raw, real, and may involve graphic and triggering content. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or are ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Rooted Recovery Stories. My name is Patrick Custer and I'm your host. We're so glad for each and every one of you that are joining with us live, um, either video or on uh, audio through the podcast platforms. Uh, We are coming to you directly in person from Nashville, Tennessee at a very special place that we will tell you about later in this episode. I'm joined today by a guest that I'm so excited to share with you all. Um, His resume goes on a mile long, so I will just mention a few things about him. Um, He is a James Beard award-winning chef, uh, a New York Times bestselling author, and been on a number of TV shows, including The Chef's Table and Mind of a Chef, Sean Brock. Thank you so much for being here today and letting us come here today to your place. So it is National Recovery Month, and all month long, we're focusing on our theme this year, that is Together We Are the Change. And we're talking to voices in the community um, who are making a change in in their community. And Sean is absolutely one of those people. Um, Sean, my first question for you is, uh, what does National Recovery Month mean to you? Even when I hear the word recovery, I just beam with pride. Um, it's, it's, It's a feeling that's hard to explain. It's had such a tremendously wonderful impact on my life. Um, And I've been able to watch so many other people enter the recovery world um, over the last few years that for me, it's just, it's, it's something that should be celebrated and just such an enormous source of, of pride. Beautiful. There's no right or wrong answer to that. And I love hearing everybody's, uh, everybody's take on what it means to them. So, um, so getting a little bit more personal, I'd love to start off with your early life and hear a little bit about where you grew up and what your family life was like. I grew up in um, the part of the South where they actually filmed Coal Miner's Daughter. So as rural as you could possibly imagine, that's where I grew up. And that, I can say with a lot of confidence, is the reason that I'm a chef. Because there, everyone grows everything, and everyone hunts and fishes, and everyone's cooking all day, and everybody preserves. And there's such a deep sense of appreciation for uh, uh, traditions, and keeping them alive, and passing them on, and doing it with with um, with pride, and early on, uh, I I spent a lot of my time in in my grandmother's garden, and in the kitchen with her, 
I thought everybody cooked all day <laughs> and, and had their own uh, farm uh, until I actually started working in restaurants. Um, and I now realize how lucky I was to grow up on heirloom varietals of, of tomatoes and corn and all those different things and to really have my very first tastes of everything be the best versions of those. And uh, you don't really see that uh, as much anymore um, as we uh, get into uh, these newer um, generations. So knowing that um, for me it's just such a wonderful uh, thing to take on, the idea of keeping those traditions alive, naming a restaurant after my grandmother, and also not just keeping those traditions alive, but looking to the future and wondering what traditions haven't been discovered yet. There's gotta be at least a few <laughs> that need to be discovered that can hopefully, hopefully last um, a long time. I always think about I always look at other cultures and other countries, and if you think about something as a tradition as, as common as balsamic vinegar, if you go to the town where it started, it's a normal town. There's nothing special about it. It's just those people had this tradition that started there and that became their thing. And that didn't happen right away. That took hundreds of years to get there. And we're such a young country here. I think there's so, to me, what really drives uh, a lot of my work is this idea that we can discover new traditions. So speaking of tradition and you know, going, going all the way back, when you were a kid, uh, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? So where I'm from, it's, now that I look back, it's a lot like Japan. Um, you kind of, take on the, 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 the role of your, your parents and you kind of keep those businesses alive. And so my very early childhood, I just assumed that I would take over my father's coal trucking business. Uh, I grew up in coal country and now I'm the first um, person in my family going back, geez, I don't know how many generations that wasn't in the coal industry. Uh, and so once I, um, once we got completely out of the coal industry, I was probably 11 or 12, um, we moved in uh, with my grandmother. And I lived with her for a few years. And that's when I really started thinking about cooking for a living. I, it's so funny. I, I grew up in the era of, um, of TV where it was, Justin Wilson and Julia Child and great chefs. And this is pre-Food Network. Um, but seeing people on TV that got to cook for a living in these beautiful professional kitchens um, was just mind-blowing to me. There were, no, there were none of those kitchens in this town where I grew up, of course. But um, my grandmother saw very early on that I had an interest in, in food in general and a passion for it the way that she did, which I believe those things carry through your DNA. Um, so by the time I was 15, I knew I was gonna be a professional chef and I started working right away. 
Did you? Um, I don't know. Of, is that early? Yeah, well, it's fit, I you know, know, for some they might say that's early. Some people <laughs> might say, "Hey, that's that's uh, you know old for knowing what you want to do." Uh, but uh, so you know, my follow up to that is: Did you know? Did you have any idea or a desire that one day it would involve um, having a level of celebrity and fame? That's the last thing I've ever wanted or strived for. Um, I'm very thankful that I have the platform that I have and I've been able to uh, experience the things that I have. Um, but for me, I, I'm such a introverted, quiet person. Um, this has been a, it's been a very wild ride, uh, finding myself uh, suddenly at a point in my life in my uh, late 20s where all of a sudden I was the face of a cuisine. And um, that actually turned out to be uh, a huge source of stress. Uh, I wasn't, I didn't have the tools to deal with that kind of attention. I didn't have um, the experience to uh, be that person. Um, and it was, it was very hard. Uh, and geez, it, looking back, it, it's such a, a blur now just living in that uh, fight or flight stage of just going 200 miles an hour as soon as I woke up until I, I went to bed. I thought that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> I later found out I'm the only person who ever told me that I was supposed to be doing that. <laughs> yeah. So I want to dive into that, you know, uh, a little bit more. Um, going through your late teen years, 20s, rise to fame. Um, but first, you know, I, I always like to ask about this. Does mental health, do mental health issues uh, and addiction run in your family? So my father drank beer every day. I can't recall, I, so he, he was never, drinking hard liquor and like intoxicated falling over, but he always had a beer at the end of the day. And then would all, he always had um, lots and lots of people around him. He was always holding court and uh, everybody always came to hang out our place. So I was always around uh, somewhat of a party scene uh, my whole childhood. Uh, well, until I moved in uh, with my grandmother, my father passed away from a heart attack. Uh, he was 39, um, which is crazy to think about. I'm 43 now, um, and I was 11. Um, but up until that point, yeah, that was the world that I would have definitely been stuck in uh, if, if, he, if he hadn't passed away, for sure. Wow. So can you tell me uh, a little bit about what your first drinking experience was like? Oh, goodness. Yes. So, um, I, I th let me think about this. I definitely remember stealing some beer and um, drinking more than one. Um, but then I, that was just kind of like a, a sort of quick experiment. I didn't get caught. Um, but I really didn't have any other interest in, in any of that until I was probably about 14. And um, 
that's when uh, we moved out of my grandmother's home and we moved to a, a small town in, in West Virginia. And um, at 14 years old, I remember um, one of the most traumatic experiences I ever had um, was being a 14-year-old idiot and chugging, um, it wasn't Mad Dog, it was something worse, if there is something worse. Um, but it was something like that, but I yeah. drank a ton of it because it tasted like Kool-Aid and um, ended up with alcohol poisoning at 14. Looking back now, that is absolutely insane. If my son, who's two and a half now, was behaving that way at 14, um, yeah, I, I just have so much grace for my mom <laughs> not killing me uh, after that. Yeah. So. Um Clearly, there's there was more to the story. That wasn't the end of it, right? Uh, when did uh, when did drinking go from? Clearly, you had a, a negative consequence at that point. But um, if it was all negative consequences, um, well, who knows? But I'm I'm assuming it was fun for a while. So when did it shift from being fun to being problematic for you? So, in the restaurant industry. There are these patterns that are so easy to fall into, most fall into, and it's work from the time you wake up uh, until midnight, and then you're so, you've, being a chef, knowing what I know now about the brain and the nervous system, being a chef is so, it's so bad for your nervous system because you're in the amygdala part of your brain, the fight or flight, for five, six hours at a time. Um, that's like emergency room kind of stuff. Like, you are not built or designed to be dysregulated in, in your nervous system for, for those extended amounts of time, day after day after day. So everyone goes to the closest bar and then every restaurant kind of has their own little bar that they all hang out at and it becomes what you look forward to. It's like you're working to get to that point to where everybody's at the dive bar having a blast for an hour and a half, two hours, and then you go home and pass out and you wake up and you do that. Uh, again, I did that from the time I was 16, uh, not drinking in bars, of course. <laughs> I would have if they let me, um, but drinking after work from the time I was 16 until I was uh, 38. So whatever that math is, that's a lot of, of uh, bar stool sitting. <laughs> yeah. If you could narrow it down, um, what would you say drove you to keep going through the red flags that presented themselves? Interestingly enough, it's so common in the restaurant industry, unfortunately, that there are no red flags. The red flags didn't start for me until uh, my vision started going bad. And um, just in general, not just drinking, but overall just being aware of my health, period. I'd never, it never even crossed my mind. I thought I was Superman. I thought I had to be Superman. On that note, 
because I know what you're leading into next and talking about your health thing, but I want what you're talking about here, fear of failure. I, you've spoken about it a lot before, and I wonder if you'll you'll share with us a little bit about what how that drove exactly what you're talking about right here, because um, I think a lot of people experience that in their own right, but specifically in um, you know in your story, can you share on this specific these this time span? Um, what was the correlation between that drinking and the pressure that that you were experiencing? Part of my coping was not only um, drinking every night, but it was also this obsession, an obsessive nature overall, but this obsession with perfectionism and that led to workaholism. And in the restaurant industry, that is rewarded. It is a badge of honor. It is what the leader is expected to uh, thrive on. And we're just, we're simply not built to do that. Um, and looking back now, I, that was my world, that was my life. Those are the only thoughts that ever entered my head. Is these plates have to be perfect. Everything has to be perfect. I've got to always be here supervising and monitoring because what happens when we get a terrible review? What happens um, when guests stop coming because the food's not good and the restaurant closes? Those fears that are embedded in your brain very early on, they drive that. And I now know it's an illness, it's a sickness. Um, when I decided to enter the world of recovery, I was so surprised when the first book that was handed to me was on workaholism. I'd never even considered it. I never even knew you could be in recovery for workaholism, or I never really understood how dangerous it was um, and is. So that was a big, big eye-opening experience for me. And then I started to really understand coping. And, and once I started to look at my behavior and realize that I was, that I was doing it um, without even realizing it because I needed that coping, then I was able to start from the bottom up and ask, what was I, what was I coping? What was I, where were the issues? What were the holes that needed to be filled? And that's really when my recovery journey started. Mm, it's so essential, isn't it? That's when it started to become a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Because instantly I felt uh, self-compassion when um, I started realizing that um, I wasn't alone and this was something that a lot of people experience. Uh, I was able to really take a step back and create some space to say, ah, we can fix this. So. You know, as you're progressing through your career, um, as your fame is building, your success is building, your addiction's building, um, can you share with us a little bit about some of what your consequences were looking like at, at, at the height? So for me, having to um, come to the harsh realization that I was doing a terrible job and failing at taking care of myself uh, was a big, big turning moment 
for me. Um, I was so scared about failure and everything else other than that. And um, early in 2014, I slipped on some ice and broke my kneecap. And I couldn't go to work for the first time in my, my whole life. And that's where I gained my worth. That, that was my routine. Those, those neural pathways were very, very strong. I had my routine that I did every single day, and that's how I, I felt good about um, who, I, who I was trying to be and, and who I was. And all of a sudden, I couldn't go to work, and I had time to actually think. And that was a very bizarre thing. I mean, that's, that's intense, intense workaholism. Uh, and of course I tried to work with a, a broken kneecap many times. I even tried to go to an event somewhere two weeks after I broke my knee, um, and tried to cook that. That's how serious, um, those, those issues were. But what really it was the biggest turning point for me for not only realizing that I, that I was not healthy, but also when I started drinking much higher proof bourbons and drinking them every single day. It wasn't just, um, you know, drinks at the bar after work. And um, I woke up uh, with double vision uh, in 2014 and uh, it wouldn't, wouldn't go back to normal. And that was, that was one of the most terrifying moments uh, of my life. And then I spent the next two years uh, visiting Vanderbilt over and over and over again. Uh, I think there was, I don't know, I think I went to Vanderbilt like 80 times in a year and a half or something. It was crazy, it was absolutely crazy. And, and no one could tell me what was wrong with me. The smartest people, in the medical field could not figure out what was wrong with me. They had this idea that I may have an autoimmune disease called myasthenia gravis, but I kept passing all the tests, um, gruesome tests. Uh, one test, uh, they take a needle about this long and insert it into your forehead all the way across. No numbing, no nothing. And then they monitor the communication between your, your nerves and your muscles. Um, for like 45 minutes. I pat, so that's a very, very accurate test for, for myasthenia. No signs. Months go on, still double vision. Um, started having lots of different corrective surgeries on my eyes. Um, most of uh, them, I had, to, um, I guess almost all of them, I had to be awake for. And now I realized that was. That's one of the most traumatic things your brain can ever experience is eye surgery. I had six in a very short amount of time. Um, and along with those um, eye surgeries, uh, it, that really just kept me out of uh, work. And I'd never been out of work that long or not having the ability to just jump in the kitchen and start cooking during service because I would look down and see two knives or, or two pans. And um, 
that's when I just started crawling deeper and deeper into uh, just an awful um, depression. So I, and then I eventually got um, diagnosed with myasthenia after even passing another one of those tests with the needle that actually went up through the bottom of my eye, um, which they didn't even want to do. They tried not to do, but it was so accurate. It's like 99% accurate, still no signs of, of myasthenia. Um, but it, I eventually uh, started taking myasthenia meds as a last resort and instantly felt better, instantly could control my double vision. Um, but unfortunately, so much damage uh, had already been done. Um, Can you share with what uh, what exactly that is? Um, sure. Just the, the the layman's explanation that we could understand. Uh, myasthenia is a rare autoimmune disease where your immune system gets angry, and no one really knows why or how or. It's, it's such a mysterious um, problem. Um, but your immune system, um, for me, I believe it was stress and, and fatigue and just being very, very unhealthy. Your immune system starts sending out these um, antibodies that attack the uh, receptors on your muscles that accept the message uh, through a neurotransmitter. Um, uh, it's called acetylcholine. And those antibodies attack those receptors, so there's nowhere for the message to go. So the communication between your, your, your brain and your muscles just goes haywire. And um, it can uh, affect your vision, your, your smile, your speech, your throat, your eating, your swallowing, your hands, full body. Um, uh, muscle pains like you wouldn't believe, but also I would grab a spoon and I would be plating something and then I wouldn't be able to let go of the spoon. I couldn't tell my hand to open. Uh, and then, the, you know, of course that just made me get to a point in my life where I was like, I don't, this is never gonna end. Like, I, is this gonna be my life forever? Um, and <laughs> being the alcoholic that I was, I was like, you know what I'll do? I'll just go into the bourbon world. <laughs> I know everything about bourbon. I'm an expert. Um, and then that became my excuse uh, to drink more. I was studying and refining my palate like a sommelier would. Oh, what a dummy. Um, and, and that got to a point where uh, I was just a very, very, very sad and miserable human being. And luckily, uh, the people around me saw that and uh, organized um, uh, the, the meeting that um, changed my life forever. Yeah. A full-on, old, good old-fashioned intervention. So can you describe for us a little bit about what that intervention looked like for you? Days before the intervention, I, I decided that I'd given up. I, I woke up one morning and I couldn't even make myself breakfast because I couldn't see. And I just became enraged. And because I, I, I couldn't see any, any uh, help in sight. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't even know if help was even possible. And um, I just, uh, I remember 
spending three or four days in a hotel room by myself just trying to think and figure out um, what was going on and what needed to go on. And um, I was in Nashville, but I was scheduled to be in Charleston for something. So I had to go home and repack my bag and then jet off to the airport. But right before I was headed to the airport, my doorbell rang and um, I got excited because I thought it was this rare antique bourbon that I'd bought on the black market being delivered by FedEx. Um, but it wasn't. It was um, uh, a group of friends who did not live in Nashville and were not scheduled to be at my house on that day. And opening the door and seeing the look on their faces um, was so jarring. It was so, so scary. But then all of a sudden I felt this unbelievable wave of relief and um, help it arrived, you know? I didn't even know that it was possible. And we sat down and everybody started pulling out their letters and letters from others. And I was so relieved and, and so happy. I remember saying, you guys can read those and I'll listen, but I'm going. <laughs> I did, you're not, you don't have to convince me, let, let, let's go. Uh, and I flew to Arizona that day, January, uh, 18th, 2017. That's awesome. Um, being at the place of willingness when others, you know, reach out to us at that, at that final point is um, really rare for a lot of us, you know? Sometimes we, we want to cling on and, and, and hold on to our vice. Um, and uh, my, I'm also a person in recovery and have a similar um, intervention story as well. And uh, I'm so grateful that I was at a place where I was willing and ready to, to accept the help as well. So treatment, let's talk about it. What did you think it was going to be and what did it end up being like for you? I'd only ever seen it on TV. You know, I'd only ever seen how it's depicted um, in movies and whatever that show was. Um, celebrity or whatever it was. So I really had no idea what to expect. I kind of imagined it would be one big 12-step meeting and people just sitting around in a circle, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. Uh, but when I arrived, um, not only was it one of the most beautiful places, the most peaceful places I've ever been, um, but you're quickly thrown into a college setting, a school setting. You have a very strict schedule that starts at like 6.45 and doesn't end until like 8 p.m. And um, each day you, uh, you study the nervous system, you study the brain, you study addiction. And the first day you're there, uh, you get assigned to a group for group therapy and you have one therapist. Um, I got, the universe gave me the best one there. I don't know how, but she is one of the most extraordinary human beings I've, I've ever been around. Um, but the first thing you do is you, you take an enormous piece of paper and you write zero to 17 or 18. Uh, and then you are instructed to write out anything that ever happened to you that was, and their definition, uh, less than nurturing or traumatic. 
And you spend a couple days doing that, and then you spend the next 40 plus days going through everything that happened to you your entire life. And what was interesting was it just kept bubbling up. The more stuff I would write down, I would be meditating and just jump out of my chair with a memory that I'd stuffed so long ago since I was a child. And so it was like, you peel a layer off and something else bubbles up. And you spend the rest of that time discussing those things. And the therapist does an amazing job of saying, well, when that happens to someone, they may behave like this, or they may feel like they need to behave like this and start teaching you uh, self-compassion. I turned out um, to be the person who I laughed at in high school who was walking around reading. I was that person walking around this campus, walking and reading. I was so interested in how uh, to work on all this trauma that I experienced as as a human that um, my therapist had to say, this addictive behavior is, is it may seem good to you right now, but you've got to understand moderation. We love that you're so interested, but you know, you're, 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 this is a form of coping. Um, but I read like 40 books anyway. And those books, um, I still reference. And, I, and I, I took a journal every day. I did a journal entry every single day that I was there. And I still look back and relive those days um, as a reminder of um, how easy things can and how fast things can get right back to that place if I decide to, to start drinking again. So true. So you mentioned uh, discovering uh, about self-compassion. Um, that being kind of the answer to something I've heard you talk about in the past um, that you were confronted with, which was uh, the issues of codependency, shame, and guilt, and how they had affected your life. Um, can you share a little bit about that uncovering process and, and, and what that looked like for you? The treatment center that I went to, the curriculum and the model there is designed around codependency, and I could not wrap my head around what that was and what it meant. It was the opposite of how I was raised. You give the person the shirt off your back and you go cold. Um, you freeze to death, but that is, that's codependency. And I honestly didn't even truly understand it until day 40 probably. But I was, there was a moment where I was getting towards the end, but I was still drowning in shame and guilt. I could not shake it. I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And I remember going to therapists like, I can't shake this. Like, I cannot shake this shame and guilt. I, do, I don't know what I'm going to do. And um, I was given this book called The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. And in there, there's um, a page where it talks about uh, a living amends. And once I wrapped my head around what a living amends was, and that became the answer. Wake up every day and prove to yourself and everyone else that you've changed. And that's all you got to do. Everything else is behind you. The past is the past. And that 
opened up uh, the sky for me. That's awesome. So, um, you know, having that wonderful treatment experience is great, and it lays this foundation for so many of us um, for, to build a life of uh, recovery after we leave the doors. Um, so what did your life look like when you went home afterwards? How long were you in treatment, and what, what did life look like after that? I was in treatment for 45 days. I wish I were 90. Um, oftentimes I daydream about going back and, and hiding out there and studying for another 45 days. Um, I flew straight into a food and wine festival, which is the, uh, it's one big party. And it's people traveling from all around, excited about partying every single night together. And, you know, of course I was always <laughs> in the middle of that. And um, I just remember jumping straight into it, going straight into an event and cooking and just watching what used to be my life happening all around me and just thinking, whoa, these people are hammered. <laughs> that used to be me. And um, that, was, that was a really crazy thing to jump straight into. But I now know that the universe did that on purpose. I was supposed to see that and feel that right away and, and have a bigger impact on me. But of course, me not really um, still even understanding what moderation means, I packed my day with as many meditations and meetings uh, as I could possibly um, cram into uh, my schedule. And uh, I started really focusing on acupuncture and Reiki and massage and any kind of anything that would help me stay grounded and centered, um, but to also remind myself that I was, I was taking care of myself. Um, but I will admit my schedule was way too packed. And when you leave on your last day, you have to give this huge presentation on what your, um, your plan is when you leave. And I remember everybody being like, that's just, you can't do all that. And I wanted to prove them wrong, of course. Um, but now I still, pr I probably, I'm about 50% of that still, uh, four and a half years later, I still practice a lot of those things every single day. Wow. So, you know, talking about how you were taking care of yourself then versus now and, um, you know, decisions you've made along the way to maintain that, there was one big one. Um, you chose to take a step back and evaluate. I don't know what year it was. Um, but evaluate your, uh, what you were doing. And uh, what year was that? And do you care to share a little bit about that 2018. Journey? In 2018, this is another funny story. I'll try to make it fast. But I had spent the day at a Jamaican car wash eating jerk chicken out of the back. And uh, it was amazing. It was awesome. So delicious. But later that evening, I had the worst stomach pain I've ever experienced in my life. Of course, I assumed it was food poisoning and um, just kind of tried to let it ride. Three, four hours later, like three o'clock in the morning, I was in so much pain. I, I was like, I have to go to the emergency room. And my appendix had ruptured. <laughs> so I spent a few days 
in the hospital uh, and then eventually ended up having to go back and spend a few more days um, because they didn't, they didn't fix it correctly. But it was those moments alone in a hospital room where I realized that, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be taking care of myself, but I'm juggling eight restaurants in five cities and I'm always in a hotel room and always on an airplane and I'm always going into the restaurant that needed the most help and I was just not having fun anymore. And I sat in that hotel and I sat in that um, hospital bed and drew the restaurant that we're sitting in and built up the courage to walk away from what I'd spent a decade building uh, to start over. Wow. So you walked away and like you said, we're sitting in the building. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning that we were gonna talk a little bit more about it. Um, and here's where I'd love for you to share your vision behind Audrey and um, what this is meant to be and you know anything that you care to share. When I was in treatment every day, they would tell me, you can't be a chef. You can't be in the restaurant industry and remain sober and in recovery. And, and healthy, I, you just need to find something else to do. That was terrifying. I don't know, I don't know how to do anything else. So in my mind, the only thing I could do was use this opportunity to create a place that, where I could go and do the work that I still have left to do with food, but create a place that actually made me happier and healthier. And so I knew that I needed a lot of space and I realized at one point that I was creating a compound <laughs> and that had all these different things going on, all based around all of my interests and my daily routines. And it ended up being a 10,000 square foot building where there are two restaurants, uh, a bar, uh, a nonprofit, a mindfulness center where uh, I basically replicated the brain center from my treatment um, here uh, in the restaurant. So there's a room where people can quickly regulate their nervous system or schedule Reiki acupuncture massage. Um, there's cranial electrotherapy stimulation, there's voltage mats, there's lots of different devices that can quickly get your nervous system regulated, um, but of course you can just simply meditate if you want. It's a very peaceful little room. There's sound therapy and aromatherapy and we'll just continue to build on that uh, room. Um, and then beside that room upstairs, there's a learning center. And I brought all my books here for the staff to have access to, but also uh, we've created a mentorship program for the kids in the neighborhood to teach them the hospitality industry. And they can also have access to my, my book collection uh, there's a podcast studio here for, uh, and it, for any of the documentary stuff that we're doing. Um, it's a lot. It is a lot. Um, I think it's really cool that, uh, you've, you took your vision and ran with it, um, and said, I'm going to do this, you know, and not a lot of people can say that they were able to execute such a dream. Well, I, I made the decision to create the place that I wanted to serve my last meal in. I want to work here until I'm 80 years old. Um, 
And I knew, I, I can now look at the big picture and realize how many years that truly is. And, and I just wanted to do it right the first time and uh, deal with the debt later. <laughs> yeah. You know, I can tell you that um, as, you know, after we scheduled this interview and I've been talking to people about uh, it coming up, uh, I was talking at the TV studio, Channel 4, recently. Um, and, you know, I bring up your name and people have nothing but smiles and uh, well wishes for you. Um, you're well liked in the community and well revered. And um, I think that's a really cool thing to, you know, when, when you have a name not only for that carries respect because of your career, but um, because you're a good person and you're doing good in your community, um, that you can't buy that. I mean, that's that's very special. And um, so can you tell us a little bit more about your nonprofit? And then I kind of want to talk a little bit more about the community uh, approach. For us, our journey towards uh, having our own nonprofit started with the tornado. I was scheduled to open my restaurant Joyland days after the tornado hit. It went straight down our street, right through the restaurant. I don't know how we didn't get any damage, but we didn't. We're right beside Basement East, which completely got demolished. If you can recall seeing those images. But what we did, and the only thing that I knew to do was to feed people. And we had no electricity, no gas. Uh, we set up all these grills on the patio and we just started cooking and cooking and cooking. And then all of a sudden, all these other chefs started coming and cooking with us. And we would just go around handing out food to people who were cleaning up. And um, seeing the uh, effect that it had on people who were in misery and in you know this awful situation, cleaning up the wreckage of their home, but to see them smile when a stranger hands them f food, um, that stuck with me. And of course, then we went straight into the pandemic and uh, the, the need just got um, greater and greater. And then I started working very closely with Second Harvest Food Bank. Um, and we started um, creating meals uh, at all the different restaurants and sending them out to people in need. But then I just, I didn't, I, I had this feeling that this was gonna be a long road. And I thought, whoa, I'm not going to be able to open Audrey, but it's finished. So let's use it to feed people. And for the last year or so, we've been making 2,000 meals a week out of the kitchen here. Uh, we're about to approach 100,000 meals. To think that the first 100,000 plates of food cooked here were for the community, I just never saw that coming. I always knew that there had to be an enormous component here at the restaurant. And I, had, I always knew that there would be a mentorship program here, but I didn't see that happening. And um, it's continuing to grow. And uh, it's so fun to see the team members who started it were originally hired to work in the kitchen here. And they've all said, you know, I'm just gonna, I think I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life. Uh, wow, that's just just amazing, and it's been, um, geez, it's been it's been really uh, incredible to see what a restaurant can truly be capable of when it comes to uh, contributing to the community that contributes to them. 
Uh, it's been wonderful. I'm so excited to, to start this, this whole new journey that I didn't see coming. That's so awesome. So can I ask you real quick when we might be able to expect to see Audrey open to the public? Whew, I just got chill bumps. Uh, soon. I would say uh, we're shooting for October for sure. Uh, no later than um, the middle of the month, hopefully. So we'll see. Uh, our biggest fear was staffing. And uh, luckily we're, we're fully staffed now and uh, we'll start our training program um, very soon. We'll start our training on the 15th. Um, this building will be full of our new team and then we'll spend however many days it takes training and teaching and learning um, and start to pull this restaurant together. Awesome. So moving back to community a little bit, <laughs> there's tons of layers to community, right? And um, I want to talk about your personal life just real quick because uh, so much of, of what we do and, and recovery and for, our, you know, we're, we're building so that we can support a personal life. And, um, you know, so some of those gifts are we find a spouse, we have kids, and you've done both of those since getting into recovery. So um, can you tell us a little bit about um, meeting uh, Audie? Did I pronounce her name right? And uh, your two children? I get asked so many times um, what recovery means to me and what keeps me going and what inspires me. And it's very simple. It's, I refer to it as the gift of consequences. And I know that I can't have the life that I have now and drink alcohol. So I don't have any issues <laughs> choosing between those two. Um, but I wouldn't have the family that I have now if I'd continued to drink. Adi would have left uh, and Leo, my two-year-old son, and Nava, my five-month-old daughter, wouldn't exist. That's crazy to think about. Those are the most enormous gifts uh, of recovery for sure. But those are the gifts that make every day not drinking very, very easy for me. And um, that's usually my best advice for people is write down the three things that you can't live without. Stick it in your pocket. If you think about drinking, just know that those three things won't be a part of your life anymore because you can't have both. And um, that's actually helped a lot of people. It helps me every single day. Um, but one of the biggest moments for me in the past few years was discovering uh, this guy named Alfred Adler. And he was in the same um, group as Carl Jung and Freud and the very early stages of, of psychology. But he had this theory that I read that changed my life forever. And it was about, you could say it was about the meaning of life, but how to determine your worth. We all are chasing worth. We all want to feel like, or we have worth and are contributing. Um, and he makes it very, very simple. He said, life is very, very easy. It's so easy, it's so simple. All you have to do to determine your worth or to feel worth or to have worth 
is to find something that you feel like you belong to or something that you may want to belong to and then work every day to make a small contribution to it. And that's all you'll ever need. And so I, that really hit me hard and, and really simplified things for me. And I just, I think life is so easy now. And I started to get overwhelmed when I started listing all the communities that I was a part of. And it was then that I realized that one of the great lessons was also it's not my responsibility to solve the problems of the universe. I convinced myself that was my responsibility, at least the, my universe, which is the restaurant industry, uh, was my universe. My universe is much greater now. But I, just, I, I thought about it, and he mentioned units of community, the smallest one being two people and the largest one being the universe. And so we've now organized our... Uh, restaurant around these different units of community that uh, we want to make contributions to. And um, it starts at the smallest unit, which for us is our, our management team. And then the next unit, and try to picture the Wi-Fi symbol on your phone and all those bands. And you'll notice as you get further out, the bandwidth gets larger and larger. So the very first unit of community and the Wi-Fi theory is um, our management team, and then the next unit is our team, and then the next unit are our guests and our producers, then the next unit is our actual neighborhood, and then the next unit is our city, and then the, the largest unit is the industry. And we've gotten up to the neighborhood part and determined that that's all we have the bandwidth for, and that becomes what we refer to as our circle of competence. That's, this is what we can contribute and stay happy and healthy. And guess what? That's it. That's all we need. We don't need to keep trying to solve um, these, these issues. We can get there. Uh, right now, let's just be thankful for the energy and the bandwidth that we have to, to be where we are. And that has just helped simplify things for me so much. Did that start off as a, in the, what does that refer to, the community diamond theory? I call it the community diamond theory. Okay. It's, we're still testing yeah. the names and things, but. So when you first stumbled across that, would you say that, um, that it first helped you in prioritizing how busy life came at you with your career, balancing you know, marriage, all those things, um, and then you brought that into your vision and goal for your company? I urge and encourage everyone on the team to make their own community diamond for themselves and their own personal lives. And I look at mine every day and I make my decisions and choices um, based around how much time I'm able to spend uh, with my family. And right now I'm able to spend two and a half full days a week. Um, and that's been really, really wonderful. I have organized my life and my schedule so that I can wake up and cook breakfast for everybody and spend the first couple hours of the day uh, with everyone. And right now, you know, that's, that's working. Um, but I will be the first to admit there's no more room for anything else. I think I'm at my happy place. And I, I had an, an idea that I, I wouldn't need much more than, than uh, what I have as far as um, restaurants go. So going from eight to three has been, it's been pretty amazing. Yeah. 
You know, I, I've heard you talk a lot about uh, the word moderation in your past and, and present and uh, what it's meant to you. I think a lot of us uh, who find ourselves needing recovery um, or struggling with addiction can relate. And um, uh, this theory you're talking about, I think, it, it sounds like it's probably helped you a lot when it comes to the moderation issue. I just, moderation is my, my most difficult thing that I face every day because I'm just so, I get so passionate about something that I just can't get enough of it. And um, that is an addictive personality. Yeah. And uh, right now it's uh, film photography for me, um, but I have to work on it every single day. And I work on it every single day. And I don't beat myself up when I buy another camera. Um, I beat myself up a little bit, but I just, I wanna focus on the awareness around noticing that I'm struggling with moderation and kind of creep into it that way. Right before I left treatment, my therapist said, your next tattoo needs to be the word moderation right there on your wrist. Did you do it? <laughs> no, I need to, I need to, I need to. Um, but it's so interesting how um, some of us are just wired to be that passionate. Um, and turns out it can be dangerous. It's so true. Um, okay, so we're at the point um, in our episode where I like to ask our guest if for any person that's listening or watching that can really relate to your story, um, what piece of encouragement or wisdom would you like to leave with them? I feel very lucky that I've become a person who people are comfortable coming to uh, when they need advice on recovery. Uh, my my um, direct messages uh, on social media every day, there's at least one person, sometimes 10 people um, reaching out and saying, you know, I, th I think it's time, what, what's next? Based on my experience, what my perspective is, there's only a couple routes that I've seen work and work, like truly work. And one of those is finding uh, a place to go for 30 days, 45 days, and go through an organized treatment program. I'm well aware that that uh, costs money and um, not a lot of people are able to do that. But I have seen the 12-step program work over and over and over again, and it's free. I think every person, whether they're uh, in recovery or not, should go to a 12-step meeting because it's free therapy. It is free therapy. The way I feel when I leave every meeting is the way I feel when I leave a therapist's office. Um, you know, these programs are designed in a way that ha they have this beautiful discipline in place. And if you follow that discipline, you can stay healthy. And my advice is to, to people who can't go to a treatment facility is wake up, find the closest meeting, get a sponsor and do everything that sponsor says to do. And it'll work. Um, it works it, and, and it is possible. And if you fail, 
big deal. Wake up the next day and try again. Don't be scared of, of failing. Your mind will always find these little ways to trick you into not going. And, oh, it's too religious or that won't work for me. Uh, tell those voices to pipe down. Just do it, go. It's unbelievable. Um, but the final thing that I always like to think about and, and to tell people is every day is a new day. Doesn't matter what happened yesterday. If, if you can wake up today and say, I'm gonna try my best, that's all you gotta do. That's it. That to me is recovery. Mm. Beautifully put. Okay, I've got some rapid fire questions that uh, the team and I have put together for Peanut you. Peanut butter so. M&Ms. <laughs> is that your favorite food? <laughs> One of my favorite snacks. Okay, all right. There you go. Um, I, that was my first question, so uh, I'm sure it's not the first time that you've gotten that one as your first. No, what was your so. question? For, what's your favorite food? Oh, favorite food. That's my favorite vice. Okay. My favorite food is cheese. The one thing that always, well, it's a tie. The two things that always, I always crave and always, and always, always instantly make me happy are pizza and cheeseburgers. Nice, I can, <laughs> I can relate. All right, Who, what's your favorite celebrity that you've cooked for? Oh, goodness gracious. Oh, Beyonce. All right. I've never been more nervous in my whole entire life than meeting Beyonce and cooking for her. Makes she sense. was the sweetest, most wonderful, yeah. wonderful person. That's awesome. Who in, uh, inspired you to start cooking? Certainly my grandmother, but watching professional chefs on the Great Chef series really did it for me. Awesome. Uh, what's something new happening in your life? Something new happening in my life. I am in the middle of um, working on a retail foods product line that will include uh, some really neat teas, uh, some uh, corn chips, cornbread chips made from heirloom varietals of corn, and some cornbread mixes and some grits. I'm starting to dip my toe into the, to the retail food world and it's really, really fun. Awesome. Uh, let's see. What advice would you give your younger self in a nutshell? Everything's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Ooh, that's good. Um, what's your favorite dish to cook? My favorite dish to cook right now, well, I'm addicted to pizza like I was addicted to bourbon. <laughs> I think about it all the time and I obsess over the perfect dough. Um, but just the simplest thing, I love cooking rice. Interesting. All right, so are there any foods you don't like to cook? I'm very good about not being too picky, but there are a couple things that I don't like to eat or cook. And um, I don't love Brussels sprouts. What? I don't love Brussels sprouts. I like them raw and like barely, barely cooked. Something about them I don't like. And I despise Japanese mountain potato. I don't know what it is, but it's this huge long potato that turns into slime, and I don't know why anybody would ever eat that. That doesn't sound great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, but it so, tastes like nothing. There's no benefit. 
Makes sense then. So what are uh, the misconceptions about being a chef? That we eat well. I don't, like, we, we eat every day standing up or sitting on a milk crate, the fastest meal that we can prepare, and we eat it as fast as we can. And that is just not what I think most people picture when they see chefs on TV cooking these extravagant meals. Um, we do get treated differently at restaurants when we go. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all right. Um, that about wraps all of my questions up for you. Uh, last one is how can people connect with uh, what's, what's going on currently, next, stay, stay up to date with everything Sean Brock? I do my best keeping my Instagram up to date, which is Brock. But we're also starting a newsletter for Audrey that you can sign up on the website, audreynashville.com, and you'll get first dibs on reservations and any special guest uh, chef dinners or anything like that. Sean, thank you so much for your time. I'm really, really honored to have this, this time to sit down with you, uh, learn about you, and share your story on this platform. It's Likewise. Been a pleasure. My pleasure. For everyone watching, I just want to close out like I always do and remind you that it is never, ever too late to start loving yourself. And you're only one decision away from a completely different life. Thanks for being here, everyone. And Sean. For more information on today's episode, check out the show notes. Recovery Stories is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health's Rooted Alumni Community. If you or a loved one are struggling, have questions, or ready to take the next step, call our admission center at 888-648-4098. Or visit us online at www.promisesbehavioralhealth.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. Whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please share with your friends. Follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are grateful for you and hope that you have been encouraged by today's episode. As always, remember you are only one decision away from a completely different life, and it is never too late to start loving yourself. 